I'm Reverend Beth Hayward, and this is Souls and Souls, a podcast for the spiritual but not religious and the religiously spiritual. Today, I'm in conversation with author, critic, teacher, student, Jenny Quist, based in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. She's the author of three novels and the mother of five boys. She is the recipient of several awards, including the 2014 Alberta Lieutenant Governor's Emerging Artist Award and a place in the 2015 Dublin International Impact Literary Award long list and many more. She's a PhD candidate in comparative literature on translingual creative writing. And in her free time, she's um, a reader of Chinese or maybe that's on her work time, but welcome Jenny. So good to be with you today. Nice to see you Beth. I want to uh, start today um, by jumping into what's been happening for you in this past year. I really want to jump right into the heart of things in your life um, because I too am the daughter of aging parents and and I know that your dad died a year ago and as when I read about you uh, it seems he was a pretty important guy in your life. And I would just love for you to briefly introduce your father uh, to our listeners. Uh, sure. My dad was a really important person in my life and, and still is. I, I find ways to, to keep him in our lives, even though he's been gone for about a year and a week now, not that long. Um, and I'm the, we also had a big family just like mine. There were seven kids, five daughters. I have five sons. My father had five daughters. And I was the oldest daughter. And um, I was also born very close to my older brother. He was only 13 months old when I was born. And my mom wasn't quite done with him. And the legend in our family that I'm sure they exaggerated, but they like to tell a cute story. They would say that when I was born, mom wasn't done with my brother. So she just said to my dad, this one's yours. This little girl is for you. Good luck. And he, he uh, drew himself into it. He was very involved with me. He talked to me constantly. And he talked to me um, with a lot of respect. And he gave me a lot of credit for being intelligent. He was just constantly engaging me on, you know, Cold War politics of the day, and gun control and all this stuff that you talk to your elementary school kids about. <laughs> and um we were very uh, close the whole time I was growing up um, in trying to kind of shield my mom from some stuff that would come up for him. He would talk to me. I became his, his confidant daughter and, um, and we, were, we were really close and, and all my sisters knew. He was a spiritual leader too. Uh, when I was a teenager, he was the, we have a lay clergy in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which they raised me in and which I still practice today. He was our, our bishop of our congregation, and so he was literally um, my spiritual leader of my congregation as well as, as my dad. Uh, and then um, when I was expecting my second child, uh, he left the church for 20 years. Wow. And it was, it was the biggest heartbreak of my life that, you know, he raised me as the, the daughter that did everything he wanted. And then he turned around and said, actually, I don't want that anymore. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was very hard, but we managed to stay uh, close throughout the 20 years he was away from the church. And then when he became ill, uh, he got a, a terminal liver disease that runs in our family finally um, set in for him. He came back. He, he found um, 
he never really lost his faith. He'd always be quick to tell people that he believed in Jesus Christ. He had a personal relationship with him. He loved him. He wanted us to know and love him through whatever church he was attending. But he lost his connection to the institutional church and then eventually found his way back to that. He wanted, um, he wanted the old ordinances. Um, he wanted the sacrament again. He wanted all of this as he was going out and... So we were able to uh, reconcile that between us. It was a, a beautiful gift that he gave to me. And um, But uh, when he fell ill, I fell ill at the same time with a, with a different condition. I've got an autoimmune dis- disorder, Crohn's disease. And it really bothered him that I was sick, of course. And um, in the last few months of his life, I asked him to go back to that lay priesthood and give me a healing blessing. It was the, mm-hmm. the, the last time, the last ordinance he ever did in our lay priesthood. And, um, and you know, it was, it was extremely touching. It's kind of like that, the, I like narrative arcs as a writer. And it was, if I was writing the story of my father and I's faith journey together, that would have been the perfect happy ending to it. Uh, especially since um, when I had an MRI to evaluate some damage to my colon, um, after a year of treatment, my doctor was just astounded at the progress I had, especially since when he looked at my blood work, it didn't look like it was going that well. And then I turned up wow. with the damage healed. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, did my dad's faith, did my faith accelerate this process and give me uh, physical strength that I might not have had otherwise. So mm. it's just this, this beautiful story between us. Um, and I, when he was sick, I was sick and I would just go, go to his home where we were caring for him. And we would just um, lay in his bed together and be sick together. Uh, and, and I'm not really in that place anymore. Like I said, I've progressed in my treatment, um, but it was kind of nice to be laid low at the same time as him. Hmm. And then um, he uh, finally got sick enough to die during um, the beginning, the early days of the COVID shutdown in Alberta here where um, the hospice care we had thought we could count on, um, suddenly choosing that would have meant uh, his effective death as far as we went, because we wouldn't be able to visit him. We wouldn't be able to see him ever again. He would die in hospice and he would die alone. Um, But since my sister has a master's degree in clinical nursing, we took him home and my sisters and I, the the five of us and my mom, we uh, nursed him through those final two or so weeks before he finally died, like in our midst, in our arms. I know that your dad's death wasn't your first experience with death. That's because I do my research. And I'm interested when your father-in-law died, a very different experience of uh, going into his apartment and finding that he had been dead, living alone, been dead for some time. And Mm -hmm. I was very interested as you reflected on that experience, how one of the great learnings out of that challenge was I think you called it death being this untapped resource like like you you found it to be not as uh, certainly overwhelming but not something to be scared of I I would love to talk about that yeah and dad was a part of that too um he was uh had kind of a chaotic upbringing his father had come home from the second world war an alcoholic um so his family life um was always kind of, he didn't know what to expect. He didn't know who he could trust. Uh, But he had, when things got really bad, his mom would take him and his sisters 
uh, up to Boys Town, the Miramichi area of New Brunswick, um, just where my family lived in these little houses in the woods on the Texas River, uh, kind of living off the land. And they were, they would have their births in the house, they would have the deaths in their house. And it, it just it was all around like the the urban separation of death and life in, you know, 1950s maritime villages wasn't the same. Uh, so I think more so than other parents who might have had those urban upbringings, uh, he was more in touch with the natural cycle of life and death. One of the houses they lived in was a converted funeral home. And so they had like this cold room in the basement with these big long shelves on it. Cause of course that was where body storage had happened before they bought the house. And, and so when I was four, we moved into a house in the North that also had a cold room and we just kind of casually, oh yeah, a cold room. So like if someone died, we could keep their body in here and it would stay and we could have the funeral. And I was like, what? <laughs> It was kind of always uh, like that. And he would tell us ghost stories from the family. And um, he, I wouldn't say he wasn't afraid of death. He had great reverence for it. And as it got closer, he did not like the unknown of it. Because as a religious person, you believe you have <clears throat> things you know about death. But when it appears, it's, it's kind of a stranger. It is, it's, it's like when you meet your child when they're born, it's kind of, well, at least it was for me. I was always um, struck by how individual my children were, how whatever I knew about my husband and myself and my family that I already had met didn't prepare me for who they were. There was always something more and death was the same way. It, it came to us and, and, um, and, and both of these experiences you've, you've talked about with my father-in-law's death where we, we were very remote from it and came into the aftermath. And then my father's death, where we were right there with our hands on him as he died. Both of those had an alienness about them. And I find this with God that there are moments when he wants me to know that he knows me, that we're familiar with each other. And then there are these, you know, Kantian sublime moments where what I need to know from him is that I have no idea. I have no idea about him in so many ways. And death was the same thing. Mm. Um, but still, um, I think that exploration and understanding what you do know and, and, and then understanding the immense scope of what you don't know, uh, those are things we can learn and can only learn by handling death ourselves. Uh, and I don't like the separation of families and death into uh, commercial businesses, you know, a patriarchal death industry that runs on shame and, mm. you know, trying to make things up to people by, you know, these capitalist gestures of, of uh, consumption at the end and stuff. Um, I don't like that. And it, it needs to be a family affair. And I don't know if you did this much research, but <laughs> in, in my church, um, there is a tradition, it's not required, but it is encouraged of families dressing their own dead for burial. Mm. Um, so taking, you know, the ritual clothing of our temple worship and um, dressing people in this before they are, are buried or cremated. Um, I've only done this once. My father-in-law was not in a condition we could handle his body. 
and my own dad, because all my brothers and sisters don't do temple worship, he didn't want to alienate anyone by looking, you know, really ritual at the end. So we just put the clothes in the casket with him and buried him, um, distressed mm-hmm. in a suit. But I have done it for family, friends, and what an experience that was just normal development for thousands of years or however long we've been on, you know, on this planet. People would, would wash and dress and care for their own dead, and it was taken from us. Yes, indeed. Quite, quite recently, um, and it takes something like this, this religion that reads as weird to most people to say, no, go ahead, this is, this is for you. This is a way for you to, to have a connection to family and to have a connection to the cosmos by handling this body now that death has come to it. It, you, you, of course, are, know how uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints um, is, is perceived um, by a whole lot of the world. And I'm, I, I would say, even myself in a mainline Christian tradition, um, it's humbling and probably good for me that we continually are, are moved more to the sidelines and, and have a sense of that feeling of being uh, other in the world. But I know for you growing up in a church tradition that is... Uh, different than most, must have had some challenges of disconnect for you. And I'm, if you were to tell people just in a few words, um, what growing up in this church, and in fact, practicing the faith you practice now, what, um, maybe you can give us some words about how you're a real person with a real life, uh, and a, a robust and curious faith. Um, not someone who who follows um, dogma to the expense of uh, your own personal spiritual journey. I don't know how that works, people. I, I don't understand the operation of dogma in, especially in like a 21st century global environment. Yes. How, how like men, you know, like you say, uh, main, mainline um, Christianity is getting sidelined too, just because it doesn't work. I think maybe, mm-hmm. um, and I am tied to the mainline Christian tradition too. We didn't start um, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's, it's a new church. It's only been around since the 1820s for one thing. And, and for another, it didn't arrive uh, for my family until the 1950s. So we're in the, the post-World War II. My grandmother is struggling with her alcoholic husband. She um, is looking for something. Um, to anchor her family in and um, some young men from the United States knock on her door like just like the you know the, the the thing that gets lampooned on Broadway is exactly what worked and what brought my family here um so and it happened for my other grandmother as well these two women these two housewives in New Brunswick married to soldiers or you know recovering soldiers who let strangers into their home with a, you know a, a new book of scripture which claimed to be another record of Jesus Christ and and they, they bought it they, they took mm-hmm. it all in and I have no idea how I would have reacted uh, if this had if it, I had been the one to have these people at my door it, I, I'm just not sure I, I would have had any interest in it and I I like where I am it's it's um, sometimes challenging to be here um, there are a lot of um, people in the American church who have just terrible unchristian ideas that upset me a lot. 
But that's all the more reason for me to persist in, in existing as I do in the world as um, a member of this church with the traditional family. You know, my husband and I are in a heteronormative relationship. I had five children. I meant to only have three, but I ended up with five. And, and that large family life was always a goal of mine. And at the same time, um, there are stereotypes about women like me that I defy. And I don't defy them as an act of defiance. I, I defy them as an act of authenticity because this is mm. the way this is the way I want to be in the world. And there's plenty of space in my faith and even in the the, the cultures that have arisen with uh, the church for me to do that. I'm not stifled or held or held back. So well, and that, I, I I think it would it would come as um, news and a surprise to some people. I think to imagine that uh, me in a you know uh, progressive mainline church, you in a a new uh, a new religious tradition, new Christian tradition um, that has stereotypes, as you say, of uh, the place women play. That that we would both um, articulate that part of why we stick with our religious tradition is to be a voice that's other than those articulations of Christian faith uh, that are death dealing and um, uh, closed-minded or I don't know exactly mm-hmm. those are not the words you use but that's that sort of idea I, I think it's uh, one of the beauties of living in this moment we live in is um, that we are able to stand in religious traditions and and articulate a new um or at least new for people um why we've actually stuck with it since our childhood that it's not because it's closed our minds it's because it's opened them does that yeah. resonate with you yeah i i really does Beth. it does um like when you look at the heart of what i'm trying to teach my children when i teach them to go about the world as christians is this just love and acceptance for people around them. And that is so hard for some people who have still got their heads back in 1820, you know, when, when uh, people speak to my church. Um, I find it's especially a moment, um, I, 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 one of my fields is queer studies and people are very surprised to find me there, <laughs> to find me there as, as an ally. Uh, and, it's just um, that the strongest thing I can do, more so I think than anything I can write or publish uh, about queer studies is just to, to uh, exist in that community and to have people able to feel my goodwill for them. Um, you know, you can say whatever you want about, you know, what people who call themselves Mormons or members of my church might have said horrible things about the queer community, but my friends will look at you and say, we mean Jenny, because that's, that's not right. That's just yeah. not her, that's not right. And that's so uh, important to, to, to live stuff um, genuinely. Um, and it makes it, it makes these moments where there are gaps in the theology, where there are things I would like settled and squashed that hasn't happened yet and I'm waiting and it's frustrating sometimes especially when I feel like voices that should not have a place are able to, to still speak um, 
but the the love that I have for people who aren't like me includes people who aren't like me because they're they're bigoted idiots. I also yeah, wh- which is the hardest. I mean, that, that yeah, is the, oh, it the is. hardest. It really is. It really is. You know, when they <laughs> and but, even when I hear like um, people who who talk about their love for LGBTQ plus people and talk about how they're able to love them in spite of who they are. And it's like, you don't know them because they're lovable because of who they are, you know? And I'm really happy to be at that point where I can, I can delight in who they are. And I can feel, you know, as a Christian, that God loves them for who they are. God created them the way they are. And part of the reason, part of one of the things he wants me to learn here is just for it not to matter. Mm-hmm. And, and then to get past it to the delight and to be at that point of delight, you know, with my LGBTQ plus friends is great. And now I have to get that delight for people who really do have abhorrent things about them. And that's, that's much harder, as you say. You're listening to Souls and Souls, a podcast for the spiritual but not religious and the religiously spiritual. My name is Beth Hayward, and I'm in conversation today with novelist Jennifer Quist. So much of our lives is actually lived in that calm, nothing, not notable, not worth writing in your journal space. Uh, And I think in your fiction, you really uh, draw on uh, the beauty of you know, normal life, normal coming. Yeah, you know, I mean, you uh, express it um, beautifully and uh, well. Thank you. In. Yeah, it's almost a a stream of consciousness. Like I've been reading a lot of Virginia Woolf during the pandemic because nothing's happening, and the same with her writing. She just goes for a walk. Mm-hmm. She just has a dinner party, and goes from little tiny detail to detail and how the details run through. She had a big family too. Mm -hmm. They run through these whole groups of people and show how connected and interdependent they are, even when nothing's happening, even when they haven't maybe talked for months and they're just right back where they belong. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't realize, I never read Virginia Woolf when I was younger. I never used her as a model, but I don't know, maybe it's a, a, feminine way to write is just from detail to detail and how it's it's all connected and the thing I'm writing right now is kind of a autofiction memoir thing it'll probably never go anywhere but it, it exists and last night I was working on it and I was writing about something that was kind of dramatic I was writing about um um I'm gonna keep my cool here <laughs> <laughs> I was writing about um, the anaphylactic reaction I had to my Crohn's medication uh, this winter, which required, uh, you know, a dramatic medical rescue moment. Mm-hmm. And as I was writing it, I, I remembered the name of, of the nurse and I was telling the story and her name is Christine. And I'm like, no, no, she can't have the feminine name of Christ. And it looks like I'm a Christian forcing something. And this metaphor is too right on. But that's her name. That's where mm-hmm. you insult her. And I was sitting there choking to death, calling out Christine. That's what happened. Uh, so, yeah, exactly that. Like, life is just, and, you know, sometimes I'll, 
you know, be struggling with something and then something will come up that seems to address that struggle. And I kind of, in my prayers, will turn to God and say, really, is it that corny? Am I that stupid that it has to be made so plain and obvious? And, and it's so cheesy. I can't even tell other people about it without losing some artistic cred. Like, come on, give me something, give me something hard. And difficult. <laughs> but often it's just like, no, this is, um, life is just, it's plain sometimes. It's, it's also very convoluted. And I've had yeah. my my struggles and I've had to draw on, you know, reasoning and intellect to get through things. Certainly I've had to look at history. I've had to look at art. Um, but sometimes there's just these really clear connections. If you slow down and go into the stream of, of consciousness and activity about you with or without drama. Yeah. And my, and my dad's death in the end um, was more dramatic. I, you know, we kind of expected this peaceful ebbing away, but just because of his personality, he fought and fought <laughs> to stay with us. And yeah, it was it was a climactic moment when he died, not a Dane Wall. Uh, we had to write the Dane Wall ourselves without him, which was difficult. Last May was a difficult time. Mm-hmm. Sure. In this interconnected web of life and time, I'm I'm going to invite you to go back with me to to our connection okay um, I, I you know I mean it probably if I went to see a psychologist uh, they'd explain <laughs> to me that the whole reason I reached out to you was to work on my own crap but <laughs> um you and I met and I don't know what was it about grade five or six and grade and six I, yeah yeah and you know of course stories are so interesting um in how we tell our version and um about that time I I broke up with my best friend and and you had the good fortune of um becoming her best friend snapped her up yeah it um I don't have a lot of regrets in my life but this is probably like just one of them there you know my own stuff of um what I did and how I feel like there's missed opportunities and I um I'd love to hear your take on that season in our lives um and maybe it wasn't as big a (laughs) Maybe it wasn't as big a life-changing event for you, but I'm curious if you learned anything in all of that. You you wrote an essay about it um, and somehow I I read it. Maybe maybe Jenny gave it to me, our our, our mutual friend. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I've read that. I've heard the story from your side and I was really surprised. (laughs) (laughs) So was she. That I felt, um, you know, here I am uh, taking such a strong stand of I will not forgive you for some small uh, 12-year-old mistake you made. Um, Well, see, I had a theory about what (laughs) what happened. And and, uh, yeah, you might be mad at her if I tell you what it is, though I don't know if I should (laughs) tell you. I don't want to give you something else to be mad at her about. But, uh, oh, no, I'd love to hear it. I mean, it's I'm not mad it? at her. I'm, I'm mad at myself because okay, there was nothing so, so unforgivable um, to give up such a beautiful friend. <laughs> this is, this is you know, a, an adolescent story. So it is gory details, right? <laughs> and you got your period. And she, Before everybody else. You I did. did. You were this, like... <laughs> tiny blonde angel who menstruated like what the heck is that so we were all just in awe and Jenny told us and then she said oh no I don't think I was supposed to tell you guys yet 
And I thought that it got back to you that we knew and that she had told us. That's what I thought it was. And so it seemed because, you know, I had these completely inflamed ideas about menstruation. I, I actually prayed my period away until I was 13 because I was so, I read an essay about it. Yeah, because I don't know if you remember this. I was having a drama with a kidney that needed removal. And mm-hmm. so I already had all this, this weird baggage about my body because I was ill. And I was like, oh, please, Father in heaven, just let me wait until the kidney stuff is cleared off. And he, he gave me that. I, I, <laughs> I got back from the surgery with a nephrectomy and like two weeks later, my period was there. Anyway, so I had all these feelings about periods and I thought, well, death is completely justified because, you know, that's period. That's like the most intense thing we have. And if mine was handled improperly, I probably would have. Too. So that's what I thought it was all this time. Um, well, not sh- you know. I think our memories are funny things. I think there yeah. were probably um, the, uh, who knows might have been part of it too. That um, I just choose to remember the. I think uh, Jennifer had her own story too, which is um, yeah, because we're oh all trying God. to make sense of it. We each had this little narrative solution to what mm-hmm. happened, and who knows what really happened, right? Yeah, but, but that- you know. That relationship with Jennifer Muse, this is a friend we're talking about, who was your best friend and then my best friend. Um, it was really formative for me. I needed someone um, because that was such a crazy time with my health and um, just with the my awkwardness. Uh, I was a very, very ugly adolescent. I struggled a lot with my appearance. Um, I didn't menstruate early, but I, you know, I, I was one of those girls who went into grade six with a C cup. And I don't know if you remember some of the boys from our class mm-hmm. were really aggressive in tormenting me about that as if it was some sexual stunt I was baiting them with or mm-hmm. something, which of course it wasn't. And so I needed, I needed as somebody who is so good as this friend we both had is and just loving everyone. She's just effusive and she never got sick of me she let me hang around with her all the time uh, her parents worked a lot so their house was empty and we would just hang out and um and I think one of the reasons why both she and I have gone on to have such satisfying relationships with our marital partners is because we trained each other we really did we were together all the time and we didn't have a ton in common Mm-hmm. But it didn't matter because we were both just so accepting of each other. Um, and we learned a lot from each other. We watched way too many soap operas. We wasted a lot of time together. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I have no idea who I would be or what I would be if mm-hmm. I hadn't had her, uh, not just as a friend, but in this dyad, this, this mm-hmm. pair of the two of us. So we had the same name, Jennifer Lynn and Jennifer Lynn. Um, and she was, you know, tall and beautiful. And I was this little troll. And she was so kind to me anyway. Um, I wouldn't, you know, go so far as to say she saved my life. I had a family that could have supported me. I would have made it through. But, but she saved my, my happiness. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, she, she made me a good partner for someone someday by being such a good partner to me at the time. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, Beth, thank you for moving <laughs> on. <laughs> well, it's not uh... me. That's a beautiful, uh, you know, <laughs> gift to hear that from my uh, regret, my sad, <laughs> my sad isolated teen years that there was some beauty from it. That's actually pretty satisfying. Do, 
do you have regrets in life? Is that, do you hold well, on to anything? Yeah, I think everyone, everyone does. Like I have regrets for stuff I said last week on the family mm-hmm. group chat. Like that's never going away. Um, but, you know, uh, with the, the life that I've had where sometimes things happened to me without my choice. Like I said, I tried to stop at three kids and then we had our IUD fail. It just stopped. And then we got this amazing fourth child. And because he was kind of on the end, we're like, well, he needs a companion. So we had our, our fifth child. And now that my, my three oldest are adults, I still have a family. I'm still a young person with teenagers and, you know, embroiled in the whole homeschooling um, pandemic <laughs> and everything. Um, and I never would have chose that. Um, yeah. So I'm not too hard on myself for my own choices because of so much in my life that I didn't choose. And it could have gone either way. And, uh, you know, even the way we, we moved all over with dad, my mom and dad um, were married when they were based in the Edmonton area, um, they, you know, went up north and British Columbia, out to Nova Scotia, all the way back. And as I go through the kind of the calculations of it, I realized that whether we had stayed here and been raised in Edmonton the whole time, or whether we had gone on this journey that we did, I still would have been myself in Edmonton right when I needed to be to, to meet my husband and have the life that I have now. So all those twists and turns and things my dad chose for me, they had effects on me, but there were some things that would have happened either way. Um, so I don't know, choices is important and I believe in it. And, you know, we set predestination aside when we when we switched, um, you know, from my, my great grandmother's Calvinist roots to, to the LDS ones, but, (laughs) but still, um, yeah, I regret no, because you just, Mm -hmm. you don't know what's going to happen next or where you're going to need to be or who you're going to need to be with and just happy to still be here. I'm happy to still be here. You know, I, I almost died of anaphylactic shock like three months ago. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm just happy for every day, really. That gives you a very uh, good perspective on the gift of this moment, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, being being chronically ill, um, which has only come upon me in the last three years, is has changed everything again. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, it's another one of those things I wouldn't have chosen, um, but it's it's done interesting things for my development. And you know, there's always a reason for these things. Some sometimes there's not, but there's a reason for this one. My my fourth son, my my big robust boy, suddenly came down with the same condition as me. He got Crohn's disease, and I just thought, well, watching us navigate the system with me versed in it, able to to say no, that medication is terrible. Do you have something else and stuff like that? I'm just even gaining gratitude for my condition because it helps me get him through his, and it, it becomes a Christian lesson again. You know, if you if you believe in, in an atonement of Christ where he suffered for all the pain everyone's ever felt in a personal way that he actually understands what it's like. Mm-hmm. And then as a mother, you have a child who gets the same disease as you. You're like, this is actually real. This knowing and having experience with someone else's experience really does make you the best person to comfort and succor them. It really does. So... Mm-hmm. Everything that happens, all the bad, all my mistakes, uh, center me back where I want to be, which is, you know, as a Christian, on a Christ-centered experience, true life, um, as one you know, I can use to serve my children and just be happy. 
no matter what happens. Oh, it sounds so, so yeah. pat and silly, but yeah. But... <laughs> Now let's call it wise. <laughs> right. Um, uh, Jennifer, do tell us, uh, you're a, a renowned published author. Uh, tell us, uh, I know you're working on finishing off this PhD, which is no small chore, but where can people learn more about you and connect with you and, uh, and find your amazing works of fiction? Oh, thanks. Um, I, I have a website, jenniferquist.com. Uh, and the publisher who's done all my works uh, is uh, Linda Leith Publishing out of Montreal. Yeah, right. Uh, thank you. Thank you for, um, for giving me your time today and opening your heart. It's been really great to, to see you after all these years. Yeah, you too. You too. You've been listening to Souls and Souls. I'm the Reverend Beth Hayward. If you like what you've heard, please be sure to rate, subscribe, like, and share these podcasts with others who might be interested. We drop a new episode every other week on Wednesday. And if you want to connect further, you can look for us at our website, canadianmemorial.org. Just click on the Souls and Souls link. Until next time.